Welcome to the Ritual House Podcast, a show about the rituals we practice, the new ones we create, and the many ways rituals help us live deeper, more meaningful, and more connected lives. I'm your host, Tova Leibovic Douglas, and allow me to be the first one to say, welcome home. Hello, hello, the Ritual House. We're here. I am currently sitting in a different kind of house, a house of mourning. I'm not a mourner myself, but a dear friend from childhood, from teenagehood, from beginnings of adulthood passed away this week, sadly. And this individual had so much to him. He meant so much to so many different people. He left the world far too soon. And I've been thinking a lot about the statement that people often will say is, hug your people tight and close. There is a sense of when we lose someone that we care about, that we love, we wanna hold one another really tightly and close and we remember what matters the most. What feels so true to me about the person, the past, dear friend, is that he kind of knew that truth when he was living. He knew how to be in the present moment, how to connect through humor, through creativity, through a sacred conversation. He knew to hold us tight. He knew that in his life. It wasn't something he had to learn in the way that I think many of us learn when we lose someone. He sort of knew that. He taught us that. And I've been thinking a lot about that this week. The episode that you're going to listen to with Elad Nehorai, who is great, we talk a lot about identity. We talk a lot about spiritual identity. We talk about our own identities and who we are and how we walk in the world, how he walks in the world. And what I'm really holding on to from this episode is Elad's sense of knowing himself enough to step into certain communities, to step out of other communities, to write about it, to think out loud, and to be a thinking out loud person for other people to sort of learn from him and his experience. There's something that's so important about us being able to state what we think, what we feel, what our truth is, no matter what room we are sitting in. And for us to lean into what feels right and what doesn't feel right. Not in a like, let's not care about people and just do whatever we want, but in a way that's really taking care of ourselves so that we can take care of the ones we love with compassion and care, so that we can be the best version of ourselves. And dedicating this podcast episode to my friend Lex. May his memory be for a blessing. Welcome, Elad, to the Ritual House Podcast. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Listeners, this is Elad Nehorai, who is an outspoken essayist, journalist, and activist specializing in extremism, anti-Semitism, tech, and how all three intersect. He is an ex-Hasidic Jew who, before leaving Orthodoxy, led a Jewish community in Brooklyn. You can find his writing in MSNBC, The Daily Beast, Huffington Post, The Ford, Haaretz, and beyond. And what I'll say about Elad, while not knowing him at all, I feel like in this moment, post-October 7th, there have been very few thinkers, writers, leaders who I have been able to read and not just agree with, but really feel like a resonance with and Elad, that is something that you have provided for me, and I'm sure for many, many people through your social media and the way in your Substack and all the things that you're doing. I just want to say thank you, and I'm really glad you're here and glad to get to know you a little bit better. Thank you so much. I'm honored, and yeah, I love love hearing that, and excited to connect. Yeah, I was just telling you before we went live. Like, I feel like your writing is actually. In my, I would label in my head. Oh. 
That's so spiritual. I, I feel like you're you're <laughs> so spiritual. Is that how you would define yourself in your writing at all? Or you don't think of it like that? No, I actually love that you said that. I think my, I was just talking to my wife like yesterday. I think it was literally yesterday. I was telling her how I'm feeling really happy with my writing recently because for a lot of my life, even from like seventh grade, I remember like I took this philosophy class in um, at like Northwestern and I was like, I loved it. And it got me because I'd always felt spiritual, but never had a real opportunity to connect to it. And then a year later I did like a debate class and I loved that. And, and since then I've always had periods of my life where I'm like either more political or more spiritual. And, um, I tend to regret like not doing one or the other. So it's like the first time where it feels like I'm combining my spirituality and my political views. So um, so I'm really happy that you feel like that because that's kind of what I'm going for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, really do feel that. So you're, you're doing it and it's hard to do, or maybe it's easy to do. I don't know. But in our climate, there's a lot, there's a lot at stake, I think for so many different people. And I wonder, I guess, I know you've been writing about these things for a while, right? Like, it isn't like, it's not like you just started October 7th, right? You've been writing about anti-Semitism. You've been writing about, humanity i don't know <laughs> you've been writing about, <laughs> writing about humans palestinians yeah. israelis like you've been writing about palestine israel you've been writing about it for mm. a while am i right about that yeah i mean uh i've kind of had different stages to my writing so i mean the answer is yes but i've also had kind of like distinct stages in my writing so some people don't even know, especially because my writing has evolved, a lot of people don't realize that I started writing in like 2008. Um, I was writing for, back when I was Hasidic, I was writing for this publication called Chabad.org. Um, and I happened to be in Israel at the time, and that was during Operation Cast Lead. And I would go on like the border of Gaza and, um, and kind of like talk to the soldiers. It was actually interesting because being Hasidic it was actually easier to get through because Chabad's like a missionary group. So I like got to get up to the even closer than a lot of journalists. I just want to say, I think it's, I don't know, adorable. I don't know the right words. I don't mean to be patronizing, but you're like an organization called Chabad.org, the place that everyone probably Googles. Like if they're looking up Shabbat and they're like, when is Shabbat? Or like, like what, like it's like Chabad.org is like probably on every, you know, I don't know, person that's in this world. Um, well, what's interesting about this stuff is like, it's either everyone knows about it in a certain niche or no one knows about it. So I try and qualify. No, I love it. it. I, lo I love <laughs> that you did that. I just, it was, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I want to hear your whole story and I want to go back actually to your childhood, but tell us about that moment at Cast Lead, which is 2014-ish, right? That's around the time? No, so this was 2008. Um, 2008 oh, 2008. Okay. Yeah. So there was, yeah, there was, this was the first one was Operation Cast Lead, then it was 2014. And now, of course, we have what's happening now. But um, yeah, so I was covering it then. I also was just covering a lot of stories at the time. Uh, like I covered Sterot when I was getting a lot of rocket fire at that time because of the war. I was also at this house called, um, I'm trying to remember, something like the Shalom, Shalom or something like that. It was in Hebron. It was a bunch of settlers that illegally bought a house because they weren't allowed to be in that area and they ended up getting kicked out. So at that time, it was interesting because it was when I was basically, I didn't grow up Hasidic. So I, I became Hasidic as I became older. And that was in the early stages. And it was it's interesting because at that stage, you're both being indoctrinated religiously, but also politically. So I was, even though I'd been liberal and progressive most of my life, being in Israel, covering these things, doing it at that time was a big part of how I became kind of both, you know, religiously conser very conservative and also politically, especially when I came to Israel. And that was a big part of my life for a while. And then after that, I moved to Crown Heights, Brooklyn. I started this blog called Pop Chassid. And in that universe, it was kind of big uh, in the Hasidic universe. And, you know, that was kind of when I started my personal writing. I, I kind of went through a long phase where I did a lot of personal creative essays and that kind of thing. And that led me to starting publication in Brooklyn where I got, had kind of a bunch of these creative out of the box, Hasidic, Orthodox, that kind of person writing for the website. And eventually after quite a while doing those two things, I left the community. And for about three years, I stopped writing because mm. I was traumatized. I needed a lot of space. Um, I had no idea what kind of person I was gonna be, let alone Jew and all this stuff. 
Um, and only really very recently did I start really getting back to it regularly. Got it. Okay. I did not realize that. You know, when you, I feel this, at least in the world of Instagram, I feel like sometimes I'll, I'll start following someone and it's like, oh, they're brand new in the world. And then I'll learn, oh, I've been at this for 10 years, but I'm glad you found <laughs> me now, you know? So I yeah. didn't want to assume, but, um, well, the truth is very, it's very distinct stages. So it's like, I almost am yes. surprised if people have read me earlier because it's such different parts of my life, oh, of, you know? Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to go back to your childhood for a second, if we can. And is there, is there a memory that you have about ritual when you're a child? And I know, I think you didn't grow up, did you, you didn't grow up Hasidic. You grew up Jewish, though? Yeah, so my parents were, are, are secular Israelis. And so I kind of had that growing up. And I was also uh, around middle school, I moved to kind of a secular Jewish town called Highland Park, where it's not a Jewish town, but it has a lot of Jews in it. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that also kind of shaped my identity for a while as well. Yeah. So, so, so if you can go back to like little tiny Elad, like <laughs> ages two to like mm. before bar mitzvah, we'll say, you know, um, before 13, age 13, is there like a memory you have a ritual? And it doesn't have to be Jewish. It could be really anything. Oh, any ritual. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I don't, for some reason, something that popped in my head was I remember being quite young and being taken to some sort of, I think it was like a Purim activity that was happening. I lived in Connecticut, which was actually at that time, that part of my life was really not around many Jews, except for my parents, like Israeli friends and that kind of stuff. And I remember them taking me to this Purim activity with a ton of Jews. I don't remember what context where, but I remember it impacting me at the time because I was so not used to being around Jews and kind of experiencing the ritualistic aspects of Purim on a bigger level for me was impactful, especially because I think Purim for kids who are not growing up in like a very religious place is usually not so emphasized. And I think that was something about like being with Israeli parents was that there was still an interest in those kinds of holidays. So um, mm. I think that impacted me as well. Yeah. Did you feel like joy in that moment when you were like around like a community sort of celebrating this holiday that's not Hanukkah, right? That everyone knows about like Purim. I, I guess it's a fun one, but it's not one that every Jewish person celebrates, right? It's kind of, yeah. we have Halloween in October in America, right? So then when it comes to Purim, which is around March-ish usually, right? In our calendar, not everyone does it. Did like it feel, I don't know, was there something to that for you or? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know about like, I think I definitely felt some measure of joy being there, but I think I think what stands out to me was a feeling of like absorbing something very new to me um, mm, and really new. Uh, yeah, new and also like kind of this combination that happens a lot with this stuff. It's like new and familiar at the same time. And I right. think that was part of becoming religious was like that as well. And I think it was also at, at that age, being pretty young and in a non-Jewish place, I remember really wanting to fit in in the non-Jewish world, especially because my parents were immigrants and I just kind of wanted to be normal. And so I remember, I think I was always kind of pushed and pulled at that age to be like very interested in those things, but also almost suspicious. Like I didn't want to get too sucked into it because I wanted to be more like I just belonged in America. Oh, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like when I hear my, my dad talk about that with his parents who were immigrants as well, like just this... And other people I know, like just this like desire to just be like, I just want to like be part of it, you know, <laughs> find a way and um, not feel different, um, which makes so much sense. Aren't we all like trying to seek belonging in some way? Yeah. So you became religious. You became, as we call the word ba Baal Chuva, which how do you translate that? I, I could translate it myself, but like, what would you, how would you translate that to people? Yeah, there's kind of like the literal and then the like, I guess, real translate. The literal would be master of return. Right. Um, but the actual concept of it is, is like someone has returned the, and the, the implication of the world word return is actually, I think, important because um, the idea is that any Jew who is not Orthodox is returning to the like correct path. And even in that name, um, I think there's a lot of power for good or for bad, where the idea is that anyone who's not by definition, then is kind of just someone who's waiting to come back at some point. Right. 
Right. There's just an assumption that this is like the way and like at some point we might all return. Right. I guess that's actually the theology right behind it. At some Right. Point. It's like we were some our souls in theory were already there. It's just like we us in our current physical manifestations need to get our act together. Chuva in general, it's interesting, but I actually love the idea of Chuva, which is that it's not just about, you know, repenting from sin. I like the idea that it's just about improving yourself and, and growing even in Orthodox settings. And I think that message is also kind of like, you're not just recovering from sin, you're like returning to a certain identity, um, which is deeper than that. Yeah, I always had a hard time with Baal Tshuva being the title of that for someone that, you know, became religious again, Orthodox again, returned to, I mean, I understand it conceptually, but it's always been hard for me because, and I have a cousin that, like, I have lots of people in my life that have, and I'm happy for them. And like, meaning I'm happy that they're leading a life that they want to lead. That feels good to me. But this concept of Baal Tshuva is like hard because Tshuva, as you just said, is such a beautiful concept. Like we do it, you know, during the high holidays, like, and I, I used to work um, in recovery at Beit Chuva. Um, and so I really love Chuva. Repair, return, like return to yourself, like find a way to like be better, right? We're all on a path to try to do better, be better, hopefully as humans. Like that's the whole point. We're souls trying to just do our best, right? It's hard to like be a human in the world. And so like, let's just find a way. And so it just feels like hard with the, with that being the lens on it. I understand it conceptually, but it feels emotionally hard for me, I'll say, like when I hear it, honestly, Baal Tshuva, personally, but. My perspective is, you know, maybe even more edgy than yours. Um, which bring is that the I think edge, Elad. I've got <laughs> edge. I'm scared to bring it out. You'll bring it out of me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it's an absolutist position, meaning you are either in or you're out. It's just like the term off the derech, right? I mean, off the derech is the term for someone who's no lo- who was Orthodox and is no longer Orthodox. Right. That's used. I think it's more colloquial, but it's it's still like the common usage. And the interesting thing about off the derech, which means I think uh, means uh, off of the pa- off of the path, is the implication is there there is the path, right? That's there's only one path, and so you know both of them are, are essentially. I don't even think they're. I don't find them uncomfortable. I find them morally wrong. <laughs> I was trying to yeah, think of, it's no, not that no. deep. Like, uh, you know, I was trying to find like a good word for it. It's just, it's wrong, you know, because it's a non-pluralistic view. I, I find that very, um, very wrong. <laughs> just, yeah. This is my it's eloquent not... writer vocabulary. But, it's just bad. Yeah. yeah no, I, I yeah. hear you. I mean, like I told you before, like I have, I have a father who grew up Hasidic ish, we'll say. In Brooklyn, my grandparents were Satmar, um, mm. Hasidim, but they like left that post-war, whatever. I don't have to get into my whole thing, but like ended up in Mandate Palestine and then ended up finding out family was still alive. So they came back to Brooklyn and raised my dad and his brother as like Hasidic-ish, like Shtibel, Yeshiva, like very from, but like wasn't in Satmar, if that makes sense, you know? Right. And yeah, he took, my dad totally went off the derech and like, once you go off the derrick, like what, what happens? Like, you know, can you return? Like, what do you return to? Is there any other way? And I mean, thankfully, whatever his story, he met my mom and my mom converted and they like built like a lovely Jewish liberal life in LA and, you know, found their way. And we ended up making up with my grandpa, whatever. It's like a beautiful tale, but like, obviously it's very <laughs> messy and like, we won't get into it right now. Like in a lot of it brokenness and Broken, 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 more brokenness, more sadness, more pain, more craving of belonging over and over and over again that we're all trying. And I think it goes back to your point. It's really hard when there is one way and only one way. I I realize I should, even though the word I still (laughs) stand by the word wrong, I think it's important to qualify why that is, because I think it sounds as if it's like a form of intolerance. I think there's a lot of people who rightly feel like we should both be tolerant of others who buy into pluralism, but part of to- part of pluralism is agreeing, or at least or at least agreeing with the fact that we should. It's important to make space for people who are also less pluralist, and I think that's true. But I do think, as someone who was Orthodox, I think it's important to parse out why we consider it wrong. Besides the fact that we believe in pluralism, like. Or more importantly, why do we believe in pluralism? Because I think these terms and these 
approaches, it's not just about the fact that they're not necessarily accepting of other views. I think it's more important that the people who are part of these groups, um, especially once you get to the more Haredi and more conservative groups, lowercase c conservative groups, the lack of pluralism also means that if you are part of this group, you're less welcome uh, in the community, less belonging in the community if you don't follow this specific path. Mm. Meaning if you are gay or if you are, you know, that's that's something you don't even have a choice over. But if you're, let's say, out of the box or you think differently, have a different opinion about certain things, depending on the community, you could receive some measure of repercussions or at least, uh, especially if you publicly share it. Um, and I think that then leads to these other problems like speaking out about abuse can be also dealt with similarly. And I think that's why I personally, like I kind of had that gut reaction of wrong because I don't think it's just about them accepting or not accepting externally. It's also what happens internally when you have that right. perspective. Right. Yeah, the norms. And I guess what I'll push back is I feel like those norms, something I've been working through a little bit, maybe, I don't know, it's like new to me. I'm thinking about it out loud a little bit is I feel like there's norms everywhere in every community, right? That like, it's not just the most from communities. Mm -hmm. It's like all communities. There's like norms that one sort of is supposed to adhere to in a particular way. Yeah. When in that community, if one thinks too differently or freely or goes a little bit differently, whatever the norms are, and it could be like really different kinds of norms, right? I've been wondering, can one be a free thinker, a free spirit, have their own like viewpoints and then truly feel like they can belong to any community? And I wonder, is it like just that the religious communities, like, are, I only know Jewish really well, right? Like, the Jewish communities you can't do it for? Or is this actually, like, communities you can't really do it? I'm wondering if you've ever felt, as an independent spirit, as a free thinker, as someone that is, like, really trying to own what you think and believe and put it out in the world, have you felt that there's a community that can hold you and let you be you? Yeah, it's such a good question. I, I was like, oh, we're doing an intro into that, all of a sudden we're getting deep into um, the good stuff. So I, I really appreciate that. Because, yeah, I think that is a very, very hard question, especially for those of us who, who are part of such communities. Because I think, you know, I, I had a really fascinating experience when I kind of took that big break from writing. You know, I had this whole period where I just... It's very common for people who leave any kind of strict religious community or cult or anything like that, um, where you just don't want to touch anything that has to do with the religion. Because at least I, I went through this, and I and I remember I was I literally could not pick up a siddur, you know, Jewish prayer book without having kind of a, like uh, anxiety attack. I couldn't go to to synagogue without having something similar. You know, for a while when my wife and I started going to one that was like my daughters were part, were going to the Hebrew school and it was important, or a, a Jewish day school, and it was important to us to be part of the community. You know, I would just go and sit in the back and I wouldn't pray. I would, I would just kind of chill. And not necessarily because I didn't want to, but just because I, I couldn't do it. I felt like I couldn't do it. And I basically lived to a certain extent. It was COVID, so it was a little bit more extreme, but I basically lived like a more independent life. I was not part of a community. We were living in a part of Long Beach at the time that was not Jewish at all. It kind of reminded me of like college in Arizona, growing up in Connecticut, where, you know, just being a, a Jew that is kind of in the middle of, of non, a non-Jewish world and white non-Jewish world. And it was, <laughs> it was really rough. Uh, I really hated it hmm. almost as much as I, not as much, but it, it was, I hated it in a very different way than, than, um, being and having the the difficulties I had towards the end of being religious. And the reason I bring that up is because your question, I feel like really touches on, on and I spent just as much energy trying to figure out that question as well, because, hmm. because the thing is, why did I become religious in the first place was that I felt very alone. I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like there was no one around me that was interested in spirituality in the way that I was. I felt like you know, I was brown in a white world where, you know, I kind of got made fun of for that and all this stuff. So I, I really didn't feel like I belonged in in the world. I, at the time, I thought this is just how things are. But then being religious, being in a place like Jerusalem, then being in a place like Crown Heights um, was really powerful because all of a sudden I was with, you know, 
people who were interested in the same thing I was. They were, we were all doing similar rituals. You know, there were centers of activity that I could go to easily. And people underestimate the power of that. Um, right. Especially if they haven't grown up with it or they haven't had an opportunity to connect to it. And I think this, this matters in your question because when you have a society that believes so much in the individuality that everyone kind of becomes atomized, mm -hmm. that is also very, very unhealthy. Um, and it's very normative in America. And in Americans, by and large, are very unhealthy. <laughs> When it comes to emotional and mental health, like we're very unhealthy. And a big part of that, in my opinion, has to do with the fact, you know, that in L.A. is like a very powerful example of that. Of Like, it's very hard to be in community in L.A. and, and because of structural things like car culture and right. um, the, how spread out everything is, etc. So I think you're absolutely right to point out that we can't be completely individualistic. And I think... Unfortunately, a lot of the messaging around like leaving religious communities is that you're free once you are completely individual and out of that. I, I think what it really means is that we need to build healthy communities that are not believing, not having toxic beliefs and, and that are still coherent and still have shared views, but that also don't, for example, there's, there's a lot of principles that I think once we learn, you know, what is a healthy and unhealthy community, I would argue it's, It's actually not that complicated once you understand these concepts. So, for example, you know, something that Marx cults and extreme religious communities and that kind of thing is shaming right. when, when people don't follow a certain belief. I mean, except for the most extreme examples, obviously, we need, do need to shame certain things. And again, it depends what we're shaming. You know, for the most part, choosing things that don't harm other people like should not be shamed in the same way, you know, personal decisions, you know, should not be mm -hmm. controlled. You know, um, I was remembering the other day, I was talking to my wife about this, was, was remembering this book that got, I was like not fully indoctrinated into the Hasidic world when, when we got married. What, what do you mean by that? Like you were, you were like in or what you wasn't, you weren't in? Is that what you mean by that? I hadn't fully learned everything. I was kind of in it very quickly. And so kind of had to learn some things as I went. Is she from it? She, yes and no. I mean, she did not grow up Orthodox or Hasidic, but she went to Chabad house um, for most of her like time growing up. So she was very familiar with it and got, mm -hmm. became basically a Balchuva in college quicker than mm -hmm. me and stuff. So she was more grounded than I was. And I remember getting this book about, and especially it's the Hasidic world in particular is very strict about this stuff. I got a book about the laws Uh, uh, like this, just to keep it super simple, it's like the sexual laws. Right. And that stuff is really intense. And there's so many things involved in that. And that stuff, I always found that to be a really powerful example of toxic versus non-toxic hmm. communal culture, because that's not about how you, it's, it's literally the most personal thing. Right. It has nothing to do with other people. It has only to do with love and connection or or not, but it's, but either way, it's very personal, um, on a very deep level. And right. I'm just going to, I'm going to take the most extreme. I think these extremes matter because I don't think we talk enough, you know, there's a lot of abstraction. Especially, especially in the world where just, we, we paint this weird picture that, oh, it's just so nice and friendly. Like, no, exactly. I think knowing right. all of it is great. Know it, right. own it, yeah, take exactly. it, leave and it, I, whatever it is. <laughs> right. And I think it's easy to be like, well, Off the derech, about shuva, you know, like these concepts because they're they're abstract. It doesn't really you don't really get a feel for what it actually means for you on a daily life. And so th this is literally like part of your daily life. And one of the things that I remember learning that was that you were supposed to visualize a holy person when you were you know reaching climax. You're supposed to think mm -hmm. of a holy person. And and if you are in a Hasidic community. That means like your spiritual leader, which is the Rebbe, you know, so you're supposed to visualize that. Right. That's, I don't think there's any way, unless you're attracted to him and you're, you know, whatever, <laughs> and it's a kink or something. But I don't think that there's 99.9% of people I don't think have that kink. And I think it's really important because I think we, you, this is something at that point, it's like literally the most personal point of your life and a connection, a deep connection with another person, at least physically and controlling that is toxic. There, that you're yeah. really controlling a part that is an autonomous choice or should be an autonomous choice. And, and it's a very, very strong level of control. And I think that kind of stuff really matters because 
That's why it's so important for us to parse out what we mean when we say norms, when we say rules, when we say communal culture, because I don't think any of those things are bad. In fact, the stuff is so powerful, it affects us so deeply because it matters so much, because it's such a deep part of being human. And so I think it's less about, oh, do I agree with norms or not? I actually think that, unfortunately, because we live in an individual's culture, that becomes the discussion. Mm. I actually think what we need to do is actually almost move the other way. We need to talk more about community, talk more about culture, talk more about norms, but in a way of like, how do we build healthy ones? Um, as opposed to decide between whether we do or don't have them. Thank you for that example, first of all. I think maybe one of the norms for me, I guess, would need to be that you get to be you as long as you're abiding by basic human decency. You care for the community. You show up in the ways that feel like you're kind. You know, like whatever those things are, whatever the norms are of a community. But I feel like what happens is, I don't know if it's, I'm just... It's just been on my mind a lot, and I don't know why you're bringing it out in me asking this question, but I do find that when you gather people together in a group, there are like unspoken, it's like they're not spoken norms that exist. It's like the unspoken ones that you're supposed to just sort of follow. I don't know if you feel that way since leaving orthodoxy or I guess Hasidic orthodoxy. Like, do you feel like you enter a community and you're like, oh, okay, here are the norms. And like, I could still be me and not do them. Or I could actually follow whatever those norms are in order to belong more. Do you feel that? Or do you not feel that since leaving orthodoxy? I guess if you feel like there's a distinction, because there's toxicity that you're talking about, spiritual toxicity, communal toxicity, like those things for sure. It's like, oh my gosh, we have to figure out how to not have that. But then there's like actually really decent, good probably communities in the Jewish community, you know, but there's still these like norms. Like you're an independent writer when it comes to Israel, for example. I imagine there's certain Jewish communities in Los Angeles or maybe not Los Angeles, in the world where if you came out and you were like, hey, this is what I write about regarding Israel, it wouldn't be so kosher in that community, for example. So are you someone that can walk anywhere and just be like, yeah, this is what I think? And it's okay what, you know, I'm curious how what that is for you. Yeah, I, I uh, first of all, I think part of the reason I gave extreme examples was because I'm trying to more talk about like principles that, that affect, um, affect us, meaning that, of course, not everything is like Hasidic, you know, control of personal choices. But um, I would argue that that then, at least for me, it's really helped me identify different toxic realities of, of communities and of cultures. And I think it's helpful because every community, every culture has something toxic or has issues that are not mm. well managed and, and that we need to keep an eye out for because it's not just like a yes or one of the biggest problems with like, you know, the terminology we have around this stuff like cult and all this is it makes it sound like there's these problems over there and there's no, or at least there's not, any of those problems don't exist with us. I would actually argue it's quite the opposite, that we, every American culture, you know, Jewish communities, we all have this issue. It's just about being able to know the specifics. So the example you bring of Israel, I would argue that's one of the most toxic problems almost across the board in Jewish, in the Jewish communal space. Yes. Um, the fact that you can utter the wrong words about Israel and be cut out of a lot of Jewish spaces, I think is one of the things that's really deeply injuring um, the Jewish community as a whole in America. I think that we are really hurting ourselves a lot. Um, and I think we're hurting not just ourselves as, as a community. I think we're hurting progressive Jews. I think we're hurting young Jews. I think, I think we're creating, you know, formalized thinking that's not healthy, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that needs to be called out and discussed because, like you said, I mean, there are healthy norms and unhealthy norms. And like you say, some of them are spoken, some of them are unspoken. I totally agree with all that. But I think a lot of these communities are beautiful and special and mm -hmm. they matter. Even the, Of course, I think that about the Hasidic world also. Right, um, right. But I, I think that the specifics of it really matter. And I think when it comes to certain things, we need to be able to say, this is toxic, this is not toxic, this is productive, this is not productive. And we need to be able to have a range of, you know, not just talk in extremes. We need to be able to say, you know, this is unhealthy versus, you know, toxic. And we need to, that kind of stuff. We need to kind of expand our vocabulary and have, have a better way of just talking about community in general. Yeah, I love that. 
I like that framing. And I think that we could all use more of it for sure. Was it hard for you to leave orthodoxy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, first of all, I think I held out for a lot longer than I should have. Um, I had, you know, like I said, I was running a Jewish community at that time. I had a Jewish publication that I was running um, and all this stuff. And, you know, we were the last few years, I remember kind of I was starting to really come out of my shell and trying to kind of hold all these things at once. So I left, first I left the Hasidic community of Chabad, but I still lived in that community and I just identified as modern Orthodox. Then I came out of supporting gay um, marriage and sex as a valid thing, just because the person couldn't change that about themselves. And each kind of step I took when I was speaking out of abuse and et cetera, led to just so much backlash and a lot of unhealthy it affected my health. It affected my family's health. It affected, hmm. you know, everything. And towards the end of the round, we were really going broke. And I could go on and on. It was very, very hard. And just feeling so ostracized from a community that, you know, I had really turned my life inside out to join. Right. You know, I had a certain trajectory. My life was going on. And I, you know, just let it all go. Moved to Jerusalem to study. Then moved to, got married very quickly. Moved to Crown Heights. And I think, at first feeling very welcomed um, and then feeling so ostracized almost like on a dime was really and then leaving i mean part of what's interesting about these kind of communities is as hard as it is to stay in the community it's even harder in some ways to leave because right. and that's why so many people don't even though they're very un unhappy or want to leave because your entire life is built around this community and everything that you do is in some way affected, you know, just as I described on, on even very personal ways um, is really programmed into every aspect of your life. I think most people that haven't lived like that don't really know what it's like and don't really understand how intense it can be to leave that. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very hard and very brave too, I would say. It takes a lot of courage to be able to, if that's, one's like if one is not it's not working it's a big leap i would say i mean i've worked with lots of people that have left as a spiritual counselor it's really hard it's really really hard yeah i think everyone that i know that's left experienced some measure of, of difficulty from trauma to just some measure of pain you know i actually in some ways i feel as much as it was very hard for me i also feel lucky in the sense that my parents aren't Hasidic. you know i didn't grow up in it so in some ways, leaving it was ironically like going back to an old life, um, much right. less than, you know, but still very hard. But I'm grateful that I didn't like lose family or something over it. Um, right. You know, I kind of joke that I went off the derrick when I became religious and then it became a balchuva <laughs> when I, you know, <laughs> came back <laughs> because, yeah. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, all that stuff is important. And I also want to say that now I feel much healthier than I felt probably in my whole life. So, mm. yeah. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel. That's why it's a good idea to leave, uh, I think, in general. And, <laughs> well, I say that because, uh, first of all, I would never want to encourage someone to leave in a uh, way that's really unhealthy or difficult. And I would never want to force someone to leave or, or say that, you know, that they should feel shame for staying. So I guess that's why I qualified that. Yeah. Um, it's a tough. It's tough, these conversations. Really hard. And then, I don't know, I'm curious, I'm connecting the dots for myself. Is it possible that you feel so able to write what you really think, right? Like, I imagine you get a lot of pushback on, like, social media, but maybe even in your life. I have no idea, actually. But, like, you write some things that I, I'm personally like, yes. Like, you know, but I know that there's a lot of people in my life that would be like, no, you know? So I, <laughs> right. So I wonder, like, are you able to do that? Is it part of the fact that you left, you know? And it's like, you just did that really hard thing by leaving and choosing a different life or returning to a different life and just being like, all right, here I am. This is me. I'm going to own me. Or is it not even a thing for you? Do you just do it? Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a great question. I mean, I think what's interesting was when I was in the community, I was very outspoken and kind of the more pushback I get, the, the more I got, the more outspoken I became because, mm. you know, I started to see problems about abuse and, you know, I, I just wrote about it because I thought it was important, not because I thought it would be controversial. I thought actually just the opposite. I thought people would be receptive. I was so naive, you know, to talking about abuse and, you know, seeing that pushback was really intense. And I think I actually have spent a lot of my writing 
life getting a ton of really angry pushback from a lot of people. Mm. And it's interesting because, you know, in these interviews, I tend to mention that the reason that it's less hard for me now, it's definitely less, much less hard. Part of it is, is of course, just experience. Like once you, once you just have people hating on you, you, you kind of learn how to get a nerd to it and how to not look at it as much and that kind of stuff. I'm going to have to like get tips for you after the podcast because I'm really not good <laughs> at people not liking me. And it's That's happening a, good a lot. Thing. People don't like me right now. And I'm not doing oh, wow. very well with it. So we'll talk <laughs> later. But yeah, I guess my point is like, hey, that's healthy. That's like a healthy response. You know, I just think, unfortunately, we live in a world that is like, we have to just get used to if you're online, unfortunately, that's kind of almost the reality in some ways, you know, but anyway, so but the other thing that has made it easier for me, it's actually interesting, because I write about much darker, even darker subjects now, you know, I write about extremism, you know, mm-hmm. when it comes to like America, I kind of talk about anti-Semitism, I talk about neo-Nazis, the Elon Musk, da, 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 all these like, intense things that in some time, quantitatively, I got a ton more pushback on it. Mm-hmm. But the truth is part of the reason I write about those things is because I learned about it from le- one of the ways was leaving this community, then becoming very invested in learning about why it was so hard for me. Why did I join in the first place, et cetera? All those principles I learned because I was trying to break down what happened to me. Like for some I think it's maybe a writer brain. Like when I'm able to explain something in my life that's really hard, it's a form of healing for me. Mm. And I think that's true for most people. But for me, that's like once I do, it's like 90% of the of the equation. And it's so, so calming to me. And so after I did that, when I would try to write about Hasidic topics or about my former community, it was so hard. It was so, so hard because it was like I would get re-triggered every time. And it was really just kind of being like being back in the community. So it, and all that, all the difficulties that came with feeling like that, even though I had left, you know. Mm. And so I just decided to put those energies <laughs> somewhere else because I was really interested in it. I really care about extremism. I really care. I've, I've always written about anti-Semitism and, and all these things. And I, and as a marketer, I, became, I was very interested in how hate groups and, and others and, and cults uh, use social media to recruit people. And so... I just put a ton of energy into that. Um, and that allowed me, it was this interesting dynamic where I was allowed to write about my former community without writing about it, if that makes sense. And so the pushback on that, even though it, sometimes it can be in the thousands or, or more, you know, um, depending on what I've written, it's relatively much less painful to me because it's not, if it's a bunch of anti-Semites getting mad at me, for example, or a bunch of yeah, who cares? right wing or whatever, like, I just don't take it personally. I'm just like, yeah, well, right. you know. You, yeah. you suck. And <laughs> so I don't feel as bad about it, you know, maybe physically threatened, but not emotionally. Um, what about people in your life? Like, yeah, well, I think my point is, I think at the end of the day, it's always going to be less than what I had when I was in the Hasidic community in that sense. Right. So that makes it much easier. People in my life. Yeah, I think um, I think I've also fostered connections that I would like to think are much more. So number one, are accepting and able to like kind of hold multiple views and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think also one of the advantages of being such a public, outspoken writer and activist is that people kind of know what they're getting into if they become my friend for the most part. Yeah, um, you're just you are who you <laughs> so, are. Yeah. Yeah, there's an advantage. There's a lot of disadvantages, but that's an advantage, um, I think. Yeah. All my views are out there for people to see. If they, and if, yeah. if they don't like them, they don't have to know me. <laughs> yeah, you know? totally. No, I love that. There's like a lot of integrity in what you write, but also in, I don't know you, but in the way that you're talking about it. And I think that that's like really the goal of spirituality at the end of the day, or any religion or spiritual tradition, I I would argue is actually to get to that place somehow, hopefully through beautiful, like communal ways and ritualistic ways. And then like, also individually, like, I I think that's like an essential component, but like, it's hard to do in the world. So it's really cool that you're kind of doing it. I have one more question for you. Do you have a ritual that you like that you return to regularly or just something that's really moved you recently you can share? Yeah, I think uh, Shabbat has been this like anchor for me. You know, when I left one of the my wife and I had like a lot of kind of struggles uh, when, when I first left because, you know, first 
First, we had difficulties of me becoming much stricter than her. Now, all of a sudden, I didn't want to be part of anything. And she loves Shabbat, among other things. Of course, she loves being Jewish in general. And I wanted nothing to do with being Jewish. And, and so we had to kind of find, and I'm so grateful, we were able to really build practices and a life that was not, didn't hurt her too much. Eventually, you know, it didn't hurt me. You know, we were able to kind of find this healthy balance. And, and as time passed, I became much more willing to enter into the Jewish sphere to the point where now we live in Pico Robertson, which is very Jewish, which is why we moved here. Mm. And I want to be part of the Jewish community and all these things. And a big reason for that was I was really like a lot of, I, I don't know where I would be. I think that I might have gone way, way away from the Jewish world. And it was thanks to her that we kind of were able to build much something much healthier, I think, than, than just leaving everything behind. And Shabbat was kind of one of the core things we built around. And that has allowed me to, that was kind of, you know, even if I wasn't doing anything for it, I was like literally not working on those days. We, we wouldn't use technology. I would use it by myself, but we wouldn't use it as a family and that kind of thing. I would go on hikes instead of instead of going to synagogues. I was able to do things that meant something to me spiritually. Like I didn't know what I believed. I just knew when I'm in nature, I know that I'm connected to something that feels real, you know, for example. Um, and COVID happened to be a good time for that. Um, going to the beach, you know, that kind of stuff. So even then, Shabbat meant something to me in that sense. And I think now, you know, now we're, you know, on Friday, we're hosting, we're having you know, a bunch of Jewish folks I really respect. And then also it's like half Muslim and that kind of stuff. And that just like gives me joy that I'm able to do this thing that has always been special to me. And now I'm able to do it in a way that reflects who I am on a, on a bigger level, who me and my wife are and her family are um, on a deep, I would say in a much deeper way than when I did it, when I was super duper ritualistic about it and strict about it, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I really love that. And I can't wait for Shabbat dinner. It's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, we're going to um, have you over. Great. Yeah, same. We'll have you. Um, <laughs> awesome. Okay. That's the so, real reason we did this, right? That's Let's literally it. Sure I just wanted the Shabbat <laughs> invite. And yeah. <laughs> there we um, go. <laughs> so we'll close out. But please, if you could share with people where they can find you, like where, look up Elad. Tell us where, Elad. Sure. I mean... I'm kind of on and off Twitter these days, but that's back in the day. That was where my main voice was a lot of the time. So I'm at Alad Naharai there where I'm really putting my energies into these days. Instagram, same handle at Alad Naharai. My writing you can find in a place like The Forward, MSNBC. Those are kind of the places I'm writing in the most these days. And then I would say the place that I put my most, the things I care about the most and, and write about the way I would most want to write about is on Substack, aladnaharai.substack.com. And yeah, I think that's, that's I mean, I guess also, you know, I run a marketing agency built around a lot of these principles called Justice Marketing. And that website is justicemarketing.io. Cool. Great to know. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was, it was so good to be here. conversation. Elad's great. All right. Rituals for you. I have two. I'm not trying to be funny when I say this, but I think Judaism has great wisdom when it comes to death. I used to say Judaism does death well in the sense that there is structure and rituals that are in place for us to mark our mourning. And because I'm feeling that with the loss of my friend, I I'm just noticing the the ripples those rituals have for us. There's so many rituals. I'm just going to highlight some of them. When in Judaism, when we when we bury someone that we love and we are a direct mourner, like a family member, we rip, we do a thing called kriya, we rip our clothing or a ribbon because there is nothing that is going to ever fill the heart our broken hearts when we lose someone. There's something to that ripping. We personally are the ones that are obligated to place earth on the casket, to say goodbye, to give a deed that the person that we loved could never give us back. There's something powerful in that moment. We then start to begin to say Kaddish, the mourner's Kaddish, which is a prayer where we say something and people say amen back. 
which say, I see you. And we are sharing that we're in mourning. And then we head into Shiva, seven days of sitting. And our friends and loved ones visit us at our house with food, taking care of all the everyday life that we can't think about because we are just in mourning, right? When you're in mourning, you're in mourning. And I shouldn't say we, but the family that lost the person is really in mourning. And so it's all of us in the community that is obligated to really care for them for seven days and to show up at night in the morning and to do prayers so that they can say the mourner's Kaddish, but also so we can be a presence for them. And we do that, and then you get into 30 more days of still not having Shiva, but still really being in in your mourning, in your grief. I mean, obviously, grief goes on for a much longer than this, but there's like a direct correlation where you can go back to work after Shiva, but you're not quite back in the world in the same way. There's some like hindrances, and you're still saying Mourner's Kaddish very regularly. And then you hit a Shloshim, which is 30 days, and that is when you gather again and you recognize, oh, here, I'm I'm marking this. And then again at the year mark. And then at that year mark, you have a thing called a yortzite, which is the anniversary of the person when they died, and you remember them. And you do that through Kaddish, but I think there's other ways. And I, I, I share this because I think that this Jewish wisdom and the way that has been structured is really helpful for all of us that lose someone that we love. It gives us a structure to place and contain the loss upon loss that we feel. So I'm sharing that ritual in case there's anyone out there that's wanting to learn more about it. Feel free to also always DM me or contact me. I'm happy to walk you through it. The second ritual I just want to share is Shabbat because Ayla just brought it up at the end of the episode. Shabbat. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel called Shabbat a palace in time. It is a day dedicated to connection, to really resting, sacred rest, and to really being around people that we love. And one of the beautiful ways to do that is to just go off technology. So I recommend taking a Shabbat where you're off your tech for at least a few hours of the day. I'm wishing you a Shabbat Shalom, a Shabbat that is full of peace and wholeness. And I'm wishing you a week that is filled with care for yourself. Take good care. Thank you for listening to the Ritual House podcast. Please be sure to follow the show on whichever platform you are listening to this right now so that you'll never miss an episode. And as we grow the show, we want to hear about the rituals that are meaningful to you. We invite you to share your ritual practices with us. You can DM us at theritual.house on Instagram or find us on our website, www.theritual.house. Also, as a new show, your feedback is really important to us please head on over to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? We'll see you back here next week to continue the ritual revolution. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a week filled with intention and attention. Take good care.